Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good morning. Um, thank you for joining us virtually. Uh, my name is Dean Chang. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you hear a lot these days about uh, whether or not we are in the midst of a new Cold War with the People's Republic of China. Now, one of the key aspects of the Cold War, the original one, uh, Cold War 1.0, if you will, uh, that differentiated it from previous great power rivalries was the ideological element ideology uh, or a system of thought and ideas was as important as physical power uh, in the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. Whose system, whose approach, whose worldview was better, was more successful? This was as much part of the Cold War as who had more tanks or who had more nuclear weapons. In fact, the 20th century was riven by ideological divides. Uh, fascism, communism, democracy. To what extent do we think that the 21st century will replicate this? In particular, does ideology influence China? And if so, to what extent? To, is there a difference between domestic and foreign policy? And does ideology play a role in either? To address this uh, question, uh, these questions about ideology this morning, we have uh, two of the most prominent and greatest experts uh, in the country on the issues of China, uh, its policymaking, and the issue of ideology. First, we have Professor Andrew Nathan, class of 1919, professor of political science at Columbia University, uh, where he teaches with a focus on China, the comparative study of political participation in political culture, and human rights. And he will be talking about the role of ideology, if any, in Chinese domestic politics. Uh, then we have Professor Aaron Friedberg, uh, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University, as well as co-director of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs Center for International Security Studies. And he will be looking at the question of uh, what role, if any, ideology plays in Chinese foreign policy. Uh, with that, uh, let me hand the screen uh, over virtually to Professor Nathan. Thank you, Dean. Great to be here. So. I think that ideology does influence Chinese domestic politics in several ways. And we can tell in these several ways that ideology is not just rationalizing and justifying some policy that they're undertaking for other reasons, but really does influence the policies that they adopt. And I wanted to highlight five examples of this, three which are ideology in the strict sense of Marxism, and two of them that are ideology in the rather looser sense of political culture. So the first Marxist belief that I think influences Chinese domestic policy is historical materialism, the idea that uh, religion and culture and other things are just the expression of the so-called economic, they are the superstructure that expresses the economic underlying structure. And this has led, I think, to the regime's blindness to the importance of identity in politics. They believe that by 
investing money in Tibet, investing money in Xinjiang, making Hong Kong more prosperous, creating economic interdependence of Taiwan with the mainland, that they can win the loyalty of these populations. They can modernize, for example, the Uyghurs away from their uh, superstitious belief in Islam. So I think that Chinese assimilationist policies and policies toward the uh, the peripheral regions are are, are purely uh, economic, well, of course, with a political repressive element, but they think they can win those battles uh, with money. And um, that hasn't worked. In fact, it's been counterproductive because the regime doesn't really appreciate that these various populations have non-material interests that are very important to them. The second Marxist idea that I think influences Chinese uh, domestic and international policy, although that's Aaron's domain, is the idea that history is a process of class struggle. So they believe in the inevitability of struggle. And internationally, that has to do with the struggle that they feel they have against the international bourgeoisie, and Aaron may or may not get into that. But domestically, they're very suspicious of their own society. And the paradox is that as they try to modernize the society, because they need to do that in order to get wealth and power and to become a great a great power influential in the world, they're creating a huge middle class. They're in, they've expanded higher education, so there are a lot of educated people. And even though they try to control the internet and information, they're still uh, creating a population that's cosmopolitan in its orientation. And so uh, <clears throat> they're creating an enemy class that's getting larger and larger, in which the party does not trust. And that enemy, the party doesn't even trust its own members because the enemy class makes up a large part of the party. So you have this necessity to repress in various ways, control information and, and scout the society for enemies. <clears throat> the third, I think, Marxist belief that influences Chinese domestic policy is the idea that socialism is a science. It's the myth of the, of the social engineer. I guess Lenin and Stalin were the greatest examples of this, but it's grounded in classical Marxism and the idea that Marxism is a science of human development and it tells us what the next stage is and how to get there. And this has led to you know, disasters of the planned economy and sometimes it's quite successful uh, and we don't know right now whether their management of the economy is going to prove to be a success or prove to be a disaster. But very often this kind of faith in, 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 in social planning, the sort of opposite of Burkean conservatism that we discover the way forward very small step by small step, uh, has, has often led them and may in the future lead them to make big mistakes that will be very costly. The two elements of political culture that I wanted to highlight, the first one is the belief in the, in the primacy of collective or community or national interest over individual interest. So this is a longstanding um, <clears throat> social value in, in China, the so-called Asian values, and it has its roots certainly in traditional 
Chinese philosophy of Confucianism, which the regime is, is, is promoting. I am um, participate in an international survey project called the Asian Barometer Survey, which has done surveys in China four waves so far, uh, in China and in other Asian societies. And we find that in the Asian societies, this belief in the primacy of the collective interest is mixed in with a, not everybody believes the same thing. There's ver, there's diversity in belief and the younger and more educated parts of the population, as they sort of modernize, they tend to become more individualistic, but there's still a strong basis of this belief and the regime benefits from promoting that belief. And that's why they are promoting Confucianism as a way of legitimating that belief. It helps to legitimate regime control over society. And the second element of political culture that I think helps to, uh, that the regime helps to, to, to drive the way that the regime behaves is the idea of moral governance, which again has its roots in Confucianism uh, and has its influence not only domestically, but internationally with this idea of the kingly way and all under heaven and so forth that uh, Aaron may, may or may not get around to speaking about, but the idea that the that the government is not um, supposed to do what the people want, it's not supposed to be responsive and accountable, but instead to take moral leadership, and that moral leadership validates the government doing uh, whatever it thinks. It's a sort of paternalistic view of governance. So this again, uh, guides the party's image of itself and its right to do whatever it thinks that it needs to do, but also is getting a little bit out of date as the society modernizes and is the source of quite a bit of dissatisfaction on the part of many parts of the public, although we don't see that dissatisfaction openly expressed because the regime is so repressive and it's dangerous to go up against it. To conclude, I want to ask, though, whether or not this set of beliefs represents an ideological threat to the United States. And I think in in in, in two ways it, it doesn't represent an ideological threat. The first sense in which it doesn't is that I don't perceive the Chinese regime as striving to promote these beliefs internationally. It's not, as Dean said, it's not Cold War 1.0, in which the Soviet Union, and for that matter, Mao's China, believed that they should promote the socialist model on a global scale. China doesn't seem to want to promote the Chinese model on a global scale. To be sure, they want to support regimes that work with them, which are often authoritarian regimes, but they're not, and they may teach those regimes various technologies of control, say the internet, but I don't think they're trying to promulgate the Chinese model for adoption everywhere, not, and I don't think it could be adopted everywhere. So they're not, they're not picking an ideological fight with us, they're kind of defending themselves against our ideological fight that we fight with them. And the second reason I don't think it represents a threat is I don't think it's that attractive in most places around the world. It is to dictators who think that looks like a working dictatorship, but I don't think that that Chinese soft power is very strong. Our soft power has taken a huge hit, but I think it's still 
a greater asset for us than it is for them. So the, I, the, the way in which China represents a threat to the United States is on the performance side of things, their rate of economic growth, their ability to you know, build infrastructure and things like that, but not as an ideological threat. So I'll leave it there and uh, look forward to hearing what Aaron has to say. Thank you very much, Professor Nathan, for fascinating remarks that really go to the heart of the ideological aspects of Chinese domestic policy. Uh, Professor Friedberg, um, where does ideology play a role, if at all, in Chinese foreign policy? Good morning, Dean. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and honored to be uh, on this panel with Professor Nathan. Um, our topic is understanding the Chinese ideological threat. And I should start by saying uh, that I don't believe that CCP ideology poses a threat in itself. Uh, the party doesn't have a coherent program that's likely to have a wide appeal, uh, as Professor Mason suggested, although I do think that they're trying to create one, and I'll come back to that in, in a few minutes. However, uh, elements of their ideology or belief system are causing China's leaders to behave in ways that are highly threatening to the interests and values of the United States and other established democracies, and also could be uh, threatening to the prospects for the further consolidation and spread of democracy to other parts of the world. So what exactly is China's or the CCP's ideology, uh, especially when we're dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, which talks endlessly about ideology, I think we need to define uh, the concept broadly it's not just or even perhaps not primarily the formally declared doctrine but rather an amalgam of ideas some of which seem genuinely to inform how the top leadership thinks while others uh, other parts appear to be aimed primarily at shaping the thoughts and the behavior of other people uh, instilling a sense of conformity and purpose in the party's rank and file mobilizing support from the masses or the Chinese people, and also shaping the perceptions of foreigners, I think especially increasingly in the non-Western developing world. And one way of uh, visualizing this is to think of it as being in concentric rings or circles. And at the heart, I think, is Leninism, the belief in the party's essential role in guiding the nation and in the absolute necessity of maintaining the party's monopoly on political power. And this is accompanied by a set of views about the nature of politics, both domestic and international, uh, that I'll touch on in just a minute. But it seems to me that Leninism is the core or the foundation on which everything else is based. And it appears to be certainly what the party's leaders really believe and which shapes uh, largely how they think and behave. The next concentric circle, and in some ways it's the biggest one, or it's the one that gets the most attention, uh, would be Marxism or Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, Xi Jinping thought, I don't know exactly what the formal label is now, but it's it's so long you can't say it in one breath. Uh, and of course, originally Marxism was a theory in which uh, material forces, economic development, propelled history through stages culminating in communism. The party devotes enormous attention to tending this elaborate body of doctrine, and uh, as Professor Nathan suggests, I think there are vestiges of what seemed to me perhaps best thought of as Marxoid 
thinking or fragments of ideas or habits of thought that are still visible in the expressed beliefs of China's leaders. And he's mentioned a couple of them. Uh, this materialism, they're definitely very materialistic in their thinking and don't understand uh, and don't take seriously the idea that people have beliefs that are not rooted in material interest. Uh, their belief in stages of development uh, and their tele teleological view of history, the idea that it's going to culminate in some endpoint. But it seems to me that the doctrine has been drained of its significance uh, as a guide to action. And so this goes back some way. Socialism with Chinese characteristics means whatever the leadership says it means. And the endless revision and repetition of formal doctrine appears to me to be aimed primarily at preserving the cohesion uh, of the party's 90 million members. Third element uh, in this system of beliefs is nationalism. So pride in the achievements of Chinese civilization, uh, a commitment to the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, restoring it to its rightful place as a world leader. Uh, these appear to be quite genuine and widely held sentiments uh, among ordinary people, but also within the party and presumably in the minds of the leaders as well. The CCP has sought to tap into them and to shape them in ways that shore up its legitimacy, at least since Tiananmen. And Xi Jinping has elevated the importance of nationalism in the party's ideological program uh, to the point where it sometimes seems to subsume Marxism, so that building socialism is now not an end in itself, but a means to enhance China's power and to propel its rejuvenation. Culture. As Professor Nathan mentions, the CCP has toyed with concepts and slogans selected from China's past, but this seems to be entirely instrumental, uh, intended to bolster the legitimacy of a hierarchical authoritarian system. The one possible exception to this rather cynical interpretation is that the party leadership's thinking on how to structure a future international order may be informed by their understanding of earlier Sinocentric international systems. So they may be referring back to their history in meaningful ways when they think about the future of the world. Finally, uh, the newest and outermost ring uh, is the so-called China solution or China model. None of the ideas that I've just run through uh, has much appeal beyond China's borders. But the CCP is attempting to craft a set of concepts that would fill this void, an alternative to Western liberal democratic ideas about the best ways of organizing societies and structuring international relations that it hopes will have a wider appeal and could help it to extend its influence. So how exactly does the CCP ideology pose a threat or a challenge? Uh, I would say it's in three ways. First, leadership beliefs, I guess especially the Leninism may be mixed with some of this Marxoid thinking, uh, shapes how they view the world. They believe that they're engaged in an inevitable existential struggle with the liberal democratic West led by the United States. Uh, they believe that this struggle is continuous and ongoing, that there's no clear distinction between war and peace. Uh, they believe that the West, the United States, doesn't accept the legitimacy of their system. Uh, that were out to get them, to contain their rise, to undermine their regime, and no amount of reassurance will convince them otherwise. Uh, because I think in their view, this is not a function of leadership, it's uh, systemic. It was as true of Barack Obama as it was of Donald Trump. 
Uh, so like in The Godfather, it's nothing personal, it's strictly business. They believe that we hate and fear them for who they are, not because of what they do, which among other things, absolves them from any responsibility for the escalating rivalry between our systems. And within certain limits, I think the leadership believes that struggle is useful, even necessary. External threats, real, imagined, manufactured, uh, help the CCP to justify its continued harsh rule and its urgent efforts to build China's comprehensive national power. The second way uh, in which ideology, ideology has an impact uh, on their external behavior is that uh, the ideology itself and the institutions based on it affect the way in which the regime pursues its objectives, the policies and tools that it deploys and which now pose uh, in many respects, an increasingly serious challenge to liberal democratic societies. So the whole idea, uh, as we would have it, of whole of society uh, mobilization in pursuit of national objectives, uh, somewhat more narrowly, the mercantilist statist economic policies, which have caused such friction uh, between China and other countries in recent years, reflect the leadership's views about the appropriate hierarchical relationship between the party, the state, and society. One of Xi Jinping's favorite slogans uh, introduced into the party constitution, I think in 2017, uh, captures this, government, the military, society, and schools, north, south, east, and west, the party leads them all. The party's emphasis on propaganda and information warfare, its penchant for secrecy and deception are not unique but they do reflect its Leninist roots. Uh, and more novel and very distinctly Leninist is the use of so-called United Front tactics uh, against uh, other societies, Western and other societies, in an attempt to penetrate, to influence elite perceptions and policy preferences. Finally, ideology uh, may not be the decisive factor, but I think it does shape how the party defines its external objectives. Since the end of the Cold War, the CCP regime has seen itself as struggling to survive in what it regards as an inherently hostile international order dominated by the liberal democratic West, led by the United States. And as China, uh, China's power has grown, the regime has begun to try more openly and assertively to reshape that order or portions of it in ways that it believes will be conducive to its own survival. Beijing evidently seeks to reestablish China as the preponderant power in its own region, so Eastern Eurasia. There may be a variety of motives here, but one is surely to push back against the threatening and potentially subversive presence of the United States and its democratic allies. The full extent of the CCP's global ambitions have yet to become clear. At a minimum, they're now trying to weaken international norms and institutions based on them that they see as challenging to the legitimacy of their own regime, uh, especially what they now openly refer to as so-called universal values. In the long run, they may hope to displace the United States as the world's leading power and to build a global order that reflects their preferences and serves their interests, much as they believe the United States has done during its run as the global hegemon. In the meantime, because that goal seems a long way off, it appears increasingly as if they're trying to carve out a partial system, one in which they would be the dominant power and in which others would defer to their wishes and support their policies. 
And as part of that effort, they will likely try to encourage others not to adopt their belief system or to recreate their uh, political system and their ideology and all of its details, but to mimic some of its authoritarian political practices and market-driven state-directed economic policies. Uh, if they can succeed in this, it would support the party's claim that its model is superior. Uh, it would help to create more stable and pliant partners or clients. It would counter the prestige and influence of the West, and it would limit the scope for the further spread of liberal democratic ideals. So with that, I'll stop and look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Friedberg. Um, let me uh, take the chairman's, the, the moderator's per, uh, prerogative and um, uh, pose a question to each of you. Um, Professor Nathan, um, in light of both your comments and Professor Friedberg's, where does nationalism fit into Chinese domestic politics? Is that an ideological aspect? Is it simply a tool, malleable? To, could you talk a little bit about where national, you know, nationalism as ideology, is it or isn't it? And does, where does that fit into the domestic picture? I guess there are three parts. I think that most Chinese people feel proud of their country because it has achieved a great deal. Um, that's, I would say, normal nationalism, and the Americans would feel that way about the United States. Then there is a kind of xenophobia, these uh, sort of crazies who are perfectly sincere, I think, in their beliefs, but I think they're really a minority, and I don't think that the government uh, promotes that kind of thing because it's potentially threatening to the government. And then I think in the government, the nationalism that's there is what Aaron described, which is uh, the um, you know desire for China to be a great power, and they're thinking very hard about how to push back against U.S. Um, you know surrounding them and threatening them and so forth, and achieving what they feel is their normal place. I I always love this uh, idea from uh, the uh, now I'm blocking his name, but a uh, a strategic writer who talked about great power autism, the belief that by any great power that its rise doesn't bode ill for anybody else, it's completely benevolent. This is a view that we have had as a country in which Edward Lutwak, and which uh, a view that I think the Chinese regime feels. It's like, what? why are you, why are you worried about the fact that we're taking over East Asia, you know, that's good for everybody. So I think that's that's what sort of infuses the thinking of the policymakers. Great. Uh, and Professor Friedberg, um, so to what extent um, do you see the CCP's worldview as really sort of decisive? That is, if China suddenly became democratic, uh, would it pose the same kinds of challenges? And and let me just add to that a little bit. Uh, one of the things you noted is that China's, the CCP, sees the U.S. as posing in some ways an existential threat to its very existence. Does that open, does that create then a view on their part of that, if they're fighting for their survival, that a lot of measures might be on the table. What I mean by that is sometimes you hear on the American side, China does not pose an existential threat to the United States the way the Soviets did. 
fair enough, they don't have 10,000 nuclear weapons. But if they see us as posing an existential threat, doesn't that, in a sense, naturally lead to them taking whatever measures are necessary to respond? I think the short answer to that is yes. Uh, and it seems to me that leadership does see the United States, the West, liberal democratic ideals as posing an existential threat. Uh, they believed for a long time that the goal of U.S. policy was to promote peaceful evolution, uh, to encourage the liberalization of their economic and political systems. And of course, they're not wrong in that. Uh, that has been the stated goal of American policy. We've sort of backed away from it in recent years. Uh, so even paranoids have enemies. Um, the question of whether uh, if China were a democracy, it would pose as much of a challenge is it's one that theorists of international relations love to argue about. And, and of course, uh, we can argue about it because nobody knows the answer. So my theory is as good as anybody else's theory. And of course, there are, there are two views on this, and I adhere to one of them, but let me just quickly summarize them. One is, no, it wouldn't make any difference at all, or it wouldn't make much of one, because all states are essentially the same, uh, and their external behavior is a function of, essentially, of the distribution of power. So as their power grows, they seek to expand their influence, uh, and it wouldn't make any difference. And maybe even they would be more difficult to deal with because uh, national sentiment is, is genuine, and the CCP regime is rather cautious and tries to control that. Perhaps if it was a democracy, they wouldn't be as cautious. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the other view is, of course, that uh, the regime does make a great deal of difference. Uh, and anybody who doubts that you know, should wonder what the world would look like if Nazi Germany had won World War II or the Soviet Union became the unipolar power at the end of the Cold War. Of course, the values of a regime make a difference in its external policy. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, if China were tomorrow to become a democracy, there wouldn't be friction, there wouldn't be problems. Uh, I think particularly in the transition from uh, authoritarianism to stable democracy, the political science literature suggests that states that are undergoing that kind of transition are actually more aggressive and can be more of a problem, at least in transition, than stable authoritarian regimes. But in the long run, I think the prospects for mutual respect, mutual trust, there'd be a degree of transparency, uh, an inclination to resolve disputes peacefully and so on uh, would grow. And a democratic regime, I think, would have much less reason than the current CCP regime uh, to try to stimulate uh, a sense of hostility and crisis to justify its rule. Thank you. So going to the audience, um, First uh, question for you, Professor Nathan, is the social credit system, of which there's been a lot of discussion, uh, part of party ideology, uh, either an outgrowth or contributing towards it? Um, to what extent do you see the social credit score um, sort of being a factor in, uh, in the ideological aspect? Yeah, I think we could link it to couple of the points that I made. One is the need for control, the distrust of the population because they are full of class enemies, and the faith in social engineering and in technology to, to uh, create social control. Uh, and maybe even the third one about the compatibility between individual interest and the collective interest, the idea that in the communist utopia, as Marx forecasted there wouldn't be any conflict of interest 
left, no class struggle would be left and the state would disappear, as Lenin said. Uh, so there's this idea that um, <clears throat> we're surveilling you in your own interest. And of course, if, 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 you, if, you have an, if you, the citizen, have an advanced ideology, then you'll get a high credit score. So you won't mind, you'll like having a high credit score. So only bad people would not like it. Probably that's the way they think about it. Okay. Uh, this question, I think, uh, is to both of you, although uh, more to you, Professor Friedberg. Um, where does Taiwan fit into the Chinese ideological viewpoint? Uh, now that the uh, party has um, really made its move on Hong Kong, uh, where does this, uh, where, what is the next step? And also, obviously, to what extent is Taiwan an ideological issue, um, whether it's cultural or Marxist, uh, in terms of Chinese domestic politics? It's obviously, uh, it has been for some time and, and is still, it may be even more than in the past, a central part of the party's program. Uh, the, the reunification of all the parts of China that were allegedly taken away from it uh, during the century of humiliation and Taiwan uh, being central to that. Um, I think it's, uh, it, it is an ideological issue. Uh, it's something that the party has promised and in a sense sort of staked its reputation on uh, resolving this problem. Um, I think there's reason to believe, and I don't, I don't know what, uh, to what extent we can rely on opinion polls uh, in, in China, but uh, there's reason to believe that there is a, there's public sentiment uh, that shares this view, uh, the importance of, of reclaiming Taiwan. I don't know if it's a majority of Chinese people, but I don't think it's something that's entirely manufactured by the party. However, the party uses it, has used it in the past, will use it in the future, again, as a a focal point for mobilizing domestic political support. Whether they will at some point be willing to take the risks that would inevitably involved, uh, be involved by trying to resolve that through the use of force is an open question. And up to now, I think the leadership has been very cautious in this. They've been happy enough to have it percolating along. They don't want it to boil over. Uh, they'd like to be in a position of being able to resolve it without having to use, the, uh, to use force. That may be some distance in the future. That's from Nathan. Did you want My to? That Beijing's policy toward Taiwan is driven number one, number one, two, and three by the security threat that's presented. That Taiwan is a key point in the American encirclement of mainland China. But that said, I think there are. And there is an ideological element, which I something I didn't discuss, which is the question of what is China, the national identity of China. China is a nation state that has inherited pretty much the borders of a multi-ethnic empire from the past. And either it's going to be hold together or it's going to fall apart. And I think that, uh, you know, from their point of view and actually from an international law point of view and American diplomatic recognition part of view, Taiwan is part of China, even from the point of view of the ROC government officially. And, um, and so um, are we going to keep this country together or not? What is China? On the 
a point that was implied by the questioner. I don't, I think that the Taiwanese government has been very careful not to try to undermine the CCP in mainland China. They don't carry out an ideological um, uh, uh, aggression or attack or uh, on the mainland because they, you know, they can't afford to trigger the retaliation that would come from doing that. So in that sense, I don't think Taiwan represents an ideological threat to the mainland. Thank you. Professor Friedberg, um, arguably for the United States, freedom of the seas is not just a legal principle. It's not just a matter of power. It is an ideological issue. Um, somebody once pointed out that the uh, only combat, uh, only U.S. warship that has actually seen combat today uh, is the USS Constitution in Boston Harbor. Um, and of course, it fought uh, in part over the issue of freedom of the seas. Can you discuss China's views on um, freedom of the seas, uh, its behavior towards uh, maritime uh, spaces, um, and the extent to which this is uh, ideological versus uh, power? Well, it's certainly true from the U.S. perspective that, it, that it's both. Uh, in fact, the United States has gone to war on, on several occasions uh, because of alleged infringement on its ability to use the seas, including against Britain, War of 1812, and, and also that was the one of the reasons for getting into the First World War. So this is not just a, a, an abstract notion from a U.S. perspective, it's related to our identity as a as a, um, a commercial power, a maritime power. I think from the Chinese point of view, uh, the uh, the issue is largely strategic, uh, but it's argued in part in sort of legalistic or philosophical terms. They've uh, adjusted; they have a different interpretation uh, of what ought to be included in their territorial waters, which happens. Uh, if it were to be accepted to enable them or to justify their taking control uh, of most of the waters off their uh, off their shores within the so-called first island chain, uh, and and that's been something that is uh, desirable from their point of view for strategic reasons. It's part of what Professor Professor Nathan referred to. The Taiwan is a piece of that, uh, but it's uh, from the Chinese perspective, it's part of the U.S. and Western effort to control and contain China. Uh, it's also significant, at least in the case of the South China Sea, I think for a related reason, which is the, the possibility that there are natural resources there that China would like to be able to access that would ease its dependence on sources, particularly of energy, that now have to be supplied from great distance over waters that are dominated by, by the U.S. Navy. So it seems to me it's a strategic uh, issue from their perspective, and they're adjusting their interpretations of international law to serve and advance their interests. Um, I think this question is more to you, Professor Nathan. Um, to what extent uh, did the CCP document number nine uh, define the party's approach to the domestic scene? Uh, for, the, for the broader audience, uh, Domestic document number nine was apparently a CCP document, uh, internal circulation, which leaked out around 2013, uh, talk about Western values as a threat. Yeah, so <clears throat> document number nine, I think it was seven 
things they said could, you know, were wrong, uh, universal values, constitutionalism, and I forget what they all were. And the, so the, uh, the questioner is asking, to what extent does that lay down a, an ideological orthodoxy for the domestic audience, I think? And yes, yes it absolutely did. It said these are things that can't be uh, taught and can't be uh, promoted on the internet and in media and so forth. So of course, uh, you know, I didn't go into this, but the, the CCP has a very, very elaborate, expensive, extensive uh, ideological uh, education apparatus that's run by the propaganda department and it controls the media and it controls the education and it controls TV and movies and stuff like that. And so these, so they do frequently send out directives of various kinds saying this or that or the other thing can't be discussed. But this kind of document number nine is a very high order document of that type that lays out Western values essentially that the regime regards as subversive of its legitimacy. Um, as Aaron has said, they, I guess we both said, they think the West is trying to, un you know, in 2015, I think China adopted a national security law, which identified national security as three things. One of them was territorial integrity. One was access to the global economy for prosperity purposes. But the number one thing was the uh, China's ability to maintain its own political regime. And they do correctly think that the policy of the United States has been sometimes stated more politely and sometimes as by Secretary Pompeo stated less politely, the policy has been to overthrow that regime. And they think that the promulgation of these types of ideological ideas is undermining the regime, so they banned it. Right. So we have about um, four minutes left. Uh, so I'm going to give each of you two minutes to uh, summarize or uh, lay out perhaps something that hasn't been touched upon that you'd like to uh, or even uh, comment on each other. Uh, Professor Friedberg? See, the one point that I'd like to conclude with is um, I think the uh, we're perhaps not, as a country, we haven't yet fully uh, figured out how to talk and think about the ideological dimension of this emerging competition with, with China. Uh, and even if, and this is, I guess, the burden of my remarks, even if it's the case, at least for the moment, that China is not in some active way trying to spread its ideology, it doesn't mean that we're not engaged in an ideological rivalry with them. Uh, nor does it mean that their ideology is uh, of, of no consequence for us and is not threatening in some ways to us. Um, as Professor Nathan suggests, this is partly, uh, and I think the Chinese see it this way, a contest between systems. Uh, but there's a change, I think, in the way that they are talking about this. Uh, whereas previously, they sort of quietly or said among themselves that their system was, of course, superior, but for a time, uh, they were willing to uh, appear to be receptive to Western ideas, but certainly about how to organize the economy. Um, increasingly, I think they've become confident, more confident, uh, that their model works. Uh, since Certainly since the global financial crisis, they've been more open in saying that in certain respects it may be superior uh, to Western models. And they've been saying that again much more openly after the COVID pandemic. Uh, Xi Jinping has also said that uh, the China experience or China solution 
may be of value to other countries that are seeking to develop without falling under the thumb of the West. So it seems to me there's only one small additional step uh, that needs to be taken for them to get to the position where they are more actively trying to promote the imitation of their model. That won't be spreading their ideology in a kind of Cold War sense, but it'll be promoting the spread of ideas about how to organize society that are inimical to the values on which our society is based. Right. And Professor Nathan, you have the last word, sir. <clears throat> Thank you. It's a privilege to, uh, to have been on this panel. Um, I, I agree with Aaron that we would be more comfortable if China had a more democratic government, not necessarily one on our model, but one that is more rule of law, one is that one is more accountable, more open and stuff like that. I think that is in the interest of the United States. And so I think the human rights component of our policy, which the Biden administration does seem to be um, upping and, and emphasizing, is very important. And it requires us to support those in the Chinese system, both in the public dissidents and also civil society actors who are not setting themselves against the regime and people inside the government and party as well who want more you know rule of law they're, they're they're advocates in the party for constitutional rule and things like that against personal dictatorship that we need to in various ways to support those inner forces we're not going to change china from the outside it's just too too big but but it, it it is it is constantly changing and so we shouldn't give up hope either but i think my final suggestion would be though that we shouldn't talk about american values but we should be talking about uh, the international human rights norms that china has in fact signed on to and endorsed and even placed in their constitution that china respects human rights so i think to, to make it less about American things and more about international norms would be more successful. Professor Friedberg, Professor Nathan, thank you so much for your comments today and for what uh, certainly from my perspective has been a great honor and a great uh, present uh, in a great presentation and, and uh, 